Welcome back to another exciting session with Kara and I on the learning curve. For those of you who celebrated the holiday weekend, hope you had a great time with family, with friends, or just yourself. We had a chance to do some great things with family, and it was good to be in a faith setting with people that I haven't had a chance to be with in over a year and a half. So it was good on my end. What about for you? We had a very nice Easter. We also celebrate Easter. Thank you for asking. It was lovely. I ate too much candy. So did the dog. (laughs) By the way, the dog had gotten into Easter baskets before the children even found them. So that was a little bit of anxiety because, you know, dogs are not supposed to eat chocolate. She's fine. So no worries there. But yesterday, as we talked a little bit about last week, was the running of the Boston Marathon. And I had several friends running. At no point in time was I inspired to run because we <laughs> live we live right before what they call Heartbreak Hill, which anybody who has probably ever run any marathon has heard of Boston's Heartbreak Hill. And so you can just see this is like the point in the marathon, Gerard. We're at about mile. I think we're right after mile 20 where you can see people like making like the calculus going on in their brain, like am I just going to stop now and throw in the towel or am I going to persist? So it was quite a display of, I think a marathon for me watching, I've run half marathons in my life, but never marathons. Watching people persist through that kind of pain is just such a display of mental toughness. You know, it really shows you the human capacity to overcome pain when you see people about to ascend Heartbreak Hill at mile 20 of a marathon. So yeah, to me, that's always just, and thankfully it was a beautiful day for it. Probably a little too hot actually for the runners. It was in the mid fifties, I think. For me, that's too hot. Oh, wow. Just brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I like to run in the thirties, but you know, of course. Yeah, of course. Midwestern person. Of course. It's the best kind of running. And I bet you people will will agree with me. Listeners, send us an email if you agree and get us on Twitter. But anyway, beautiful day and really such a wonderful event for not just the city of Boston, but for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, especially those communities that are along the route. It's a feeling unlike any other. So, And let me give a shout out to UVA President Jim Ryan, who ran his 11th straight Boston Marathon. And this time he's doing it for veterans. As many of our listeners know, he's the former dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, but he is an avid runner and he is doing it for a good call. So I want to make sure as someone who works at UVA, I want to give my president a shout out. Impressive. George, have you ever thought about, have you ever run a marathon or thought about running a marathon? No, what I do is watch it on TV or when friends of mine decide to do so, I'm like, I cheer on, I'll donate money to their cause, but I am not a runner unless chased or chasing someone because I need something. But other than that, there's no running legs here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's something. I've thought about it. I think I might have mentioned last time I ran a half marathon seven months pregnant. Yeah, because that's a good idea. Especially when you have a pregnant. <laughs> Especially, you know what it was? It's my competitive spirit. My husband was going to do it. And of course, at the time, when we signed up for the marathon... I don't even know if I knew I was pregnant yet. But once I discovered that he was going to do it, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this and I'm going to beat you. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) But I will never do it again. I finished that half marathon and I thought to myself, that is an activity I will never engage in again as long as I live. So there you go. That's impressive. (laughs) It's it's stupid because I hadn't trained. Anywho, we've got quite a show ahead of us, Gerard. As always, I'm just curious to know what you're going to be ranting about this week. 
So my rant is about my home state where I grew up, California. And this is from Cal Matters. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Joe Hong is the author. And it says, California public school enrollment drops below 6 million mark. So for the first time since the start of the century, California has fewer than 6 million students attending public schools. And this isn't only a drop in public schools writ large. Charter schools also saw a decline for the first time since 2014. Now, when the Department of Education began to disaggregate data, they identified a few points. So, for example, kindergarten enrollment is up but nowhere near the pre-pandemic level. This year, now the schools are open, kindergarten enrollment was up by more than 7,000 students, recovering slightly from the loss last year of 60,000 students. Now, on the private school side, there are more than 9,000 students who've enrolled in private school, roughly a 1.7% increase. But that doesn't explain the major exodus from public schools. So the, the author makes a couple of good points we should at least hold on to. Number one, he reminds us that enrollment in California was on a steady decline for more than a decade, even before the pandemic. And what reason did he name? He said mostly due to the lack of affordable housing. And so people began to move and change. Well, this brings me to point two. The president of the California Charter Schools Association, Myrna Castorone, she said this decline also illustrates how charter schools are facing the same statewide challenges as her non-public charter school or non-charter friends, and she's called for equitable funding. And so through the article, it goes down for how many first graders were here. But here's one thing. Even though the numbers for kindergarten went up, enrollment numbers for first graders dropped 18,000 students this year. And it raises questions because they said, wait a minute, we had a nice enrollment last year. So students who qualify for kindergarten, who now qualify for first grade, thousands of them are not coming back. And when the California Department of Education was asked for a comment, it said it wouldn't comment on where those students went and some school districts are trying to find an answer. So at the state level, the governor said, well, I tell you what, in California, funding is driven in part by enrollment and attendance rates. So Governor Newsom said what he wants to do is to allow districts to use a three-year average attendance rate to calculate next year's funding. The reason for looking at three years, would it would bring you pre-pandemic, pre-drop in numbers, and it will look at attendance versus enrollment. Because for a host of reasons, as the authors identify, we've lost a lot of students and Department of Education cannot necessarily identify who, what, where, when, or why. There are also some privacy reasons to consider. There's also a state senator who introduced Senate Bill 830 to help with funding. So I will buy that affordable housing is one factor why there is a drop in the number of students in California. But I decided to even do a deeper dive. And so I took a look at an article in the Los Angeles Times from December 18, 2021. And in that article, the author says, the California population, yes, continues to decline. And it's putting in perspective, the six, well, the drop below 6 million isn't just a drop for students. Many of those students are in homes or communities where there's also a drop. So California itself has a decline. Why? Well, one, driven by lower immigration, two, fewer deaths, well, fewer births, and some pandemic deaths. 
And so I said, wow. So yeah, decline in students. Okay. Affordable housing. Got it. There's also a drop in the population, at least according to one author, lower immigration. Got it. Fewer births, comma, pandemic deaths. And I said, well, that's going to have an impact on the state as well. Well, what people may not know is that for the first time in the 171-year history of California, census data has come out and identified that not only did California have a drop in population, as a result, it actually lost a congressional seat, moving from 53 House districts to 52. Now, that may not mean much to people outside of California, but it matters a lot to people in California. Why? Well, one fewer state rep in the House means one fewer vote in the Electoral College, which helps decide who's going to be president. And there's going to be less than $1.5 trillion in federal money distributed to the state each year. So I said, but there's got to be something other than that, or in addition to. But most of the answers that I've read so far have a lot to do with what's taking place internal. And then I decided to read an article by one of my colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, Mark Perry. And he's written for years about why people decide to leave states. And what he decides to do is to look at the number of U-Hauls that leave one state and go to another. And so what he's identified is that between 2010 and 2019, that the top 10 mostly blue states lost 845,000 citizens, while the top 10 most red states actually gained a million. And so when you, I did a deeper dive, I said, well, who are the states? So in 2021, the top 10 inbound states are Florida, followed by Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Idaho, Utah, Nevada. And some of our listeners won't like this, California, a the number one outbound state followed by New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, yep. Louisiana, Maryland, Hawaii, and Minnesota, as well as Michigan, your former home state. So I put into perspective, California student enrollment dropping by 6% is influenced by a lot of factors. Affordable housing is one, immigration is another. So are pandemic deaths, as well as birth rates. But let's also put in mind that people are leaving the state and going to states that have lower taxes, that yeah. have had a, a higher, in fact, a lower unemployment rate, states that are providing tax breaks for businesses. So when I look at the numbers, it's an education discussion, but it's a broader discussion about demographics, taxes, and public policy. I'm thinking blue states are getting nervous when they hear you say that, especially talking about decline in census data and losing representatives. And But I think we know it's true. And we know that a lot of these states where you've named where folks are going have been working hard to get folks to there. And we can talk about, I think you're right, it starts with an education conversation, but it's different than that because some of those states also have a lot of work to do on their education systems. But I want to go back, Gerard, and ask you a question about Governor Newsom's fix here. Because now, granted, we are coming out of a pandemic, enrollment seems unstable, blah, blah, blah. But it sounds like you've got some pretty good numbers that this is a pre-pandemic problem, right? Enrollment's been going down for a long time for many of the reasons that you named. So in your mind, is the right answer to say, well, let's just pad things for a while and make this? I mean, I do... Listen, I do to some extent get the argument. I wish that we didn't have to make it because I wish our school districts were more efficient and less lumbering 
than they are because they are these lumbering bureaucracies that don't seem to be able to adjust really well when suddenly they don't have as many kids in the school as they thought they did. But to take an approach that sort of pads funding for kids who aren't there over a longer period of time, I wonder about the extent to which that really solves the problem, which is school districts need to adjust. They need to be nimble. California, unless it suddenly housing stock becomes much more affordable, unless a range of other things happen, is probably not going to recover its population in the near term. And so what does that mean for spending money on things like propping up empty facilities? We have this problem here in Boston. And that money's not necessarily going to kids and going to their education. So I'm curious as to what you think of that part of it. I accept his proposal as a stopgap measure to try to hold harmless schools for one to two years. So for that, I'm fine with the green light. I also know that California's got billions of dollars in CARES money that's gone to the state for some students, in fact, who may not be there now. And so I don't want money to be a reason why the state can't move forward to try to fix this. So in this instance, I'm a green light on it. You're a green light on it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's hard not to be in the short term. My question is, will they change things in the long term? Oh, great we, question. The you know, we no. know that, yeah. Now, these states could be using this opportunity to say, hey, here's an idea. Let's turn towards a model of student-centered funding. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be the table. Um, yeah, no, that's actually a good point. No, they won't change because there are no legislative incentives to do so. Exactly. Uh, California funding model is really different than most states because there's also a community college dynamic as well. So no, they won't go to a, we call a backpack model of the uh, yeah. money following the student. They won't do that. The question will be two years from now, are you going to continue to keep attendance and enrollment? Well, if you get to year three and you're saying attendance and not enrollment, ah, now we have a problem because you have ghost students yes. and not students who are actually there. Yeah. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt for two years, but I don't expect a major push. But in the article, superintendents are saying we're having to compete with each other for students. Hmm. And you're competing like private schools and like charter schools and like cities, you're competing for talent. So it is an interesting oh, story, but this is a story about not California dreaming in reverse. There you go. And how dare they insert competition into education? We know that's not good. That's so bad. So bad. Well, you know, you mentioned this also made my ears perk up that you said California's got a bunch of money, a bunch of CARES funding. And with kids leaving, they should have extra to spend on the kids. Yes. Well, maybe. I don't know. My article, it's the question is, will they spend it on things that will ultimately benefit kids? I've got this really interesting piece. It's from the Brookings Institute blog, the Brown Center Chalkboard by Kenneth Shores and Matthew Steinberg. And they're blogging about a research paper they just did. And I, I just, it's really cool. I mean, I think that, you know, they asked three really broad questions, which I sort of love. And they're looking at, the main question they asked is, has federal crisis spending served its intended objectives? That's the title of the blog and the big question they're trying to ask. And then they've got three sub questions here. So they're looking at American recovery and reinvestment funds. Remember that? Remember that? Um, well, I do. Yeah, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act after the Great Recession. And they're also looking, of course, at ESSER funds. So as a reminder, 
ARRA funds were about 50 billion and the whole purpose was to give money to the state so that they could simply like get school budgets up to pre-recession levels. And then of course, ESSER funds, we're talking $190 billion, Gerard. And so they wanted to look at three things specifically. The first was, were the funds allotted sufficient to basically meet the policy goal, which in this case is to offset learning loss? Were the funds allocated to the districts with most need? And were they used in a way that would help districts meet the purported policy goal? So again, to recover learning loss. So on all counts, and this is a really interesting example of us, I mean, why are we, we're asking this question about ARRA now, and there were very few studies or a couple done at the time to see like, okay, so what difference did it make, if any? And it's not to say that it didn't make some difference, it did. I certainly have memories of entering schools to do research studies after they had received ARRA funds. And man, there were a lot of nice looking smart boards hanging in those schools that nobody knew how to use. But there were some definite good infrastructure changes that happened. And I think, but these authors conclude that if you really look at these questions, were the funds sufficient to offset learning loss? Were they allocated to districts most in need? By and large, the answer is no. So surprise, surprise, right? Under ARA, it seemed to work a bit in the beginning, but really at the end of the day, they said the funds weren't enough to get the districts that needed it most back up to pre-recession spending levels. Now we know we've had lots of people on the show that will tell you spending isn't everything, budgets aren't everything, but in the context of a budget taking a sudden and big hit, I remember being on the board of a charter school at this time and us realizing like, wow, halfway through the year, luckily this all state, all schools were experiencing in this and, and state had to help make up for it. So, but we were really taking, it was a big budget impact and we had tough decisions to make on very short notice. And so there really weren't enough funds under ARRA. This is fascinating to me. Under ESSER, what the authors conclude is that actually, well, first of all, if the policy goal is to offset learning loss, we don't know the extent of learning loss still. We're still trying to figure it out. And we don't know the extent of learning loss where. One thing that we do know is that as ESSER funds were being allocated, states actually weren't taking as big of a budgetary hit as we predicted they would in the beginning from COVID, uh-huh. right? State budgets actually turned out to be pretty okay. But under ESSER, if you look at the most dramatic predictions around learning loss, you would still come up a little bit short in terms of are the funds allocated enough to actually address learning loss. So let's put that in the bucket of we will see. The other really interesting question around were the funds getting to where they needed to be? That is the districts that were hardest hit, the districts with the students that were already suffering the greatest gaps in learning. And in there, the story again is very interesting because under ARRA, it wasn't so much targeted at we're going to target low income districts because states were already doing that. They sort of handed the money over to states and then states followed their own formulas. And a lot of states were already giving more funding to lower income districts. But under ESSER, remember, we distributed those funds using Title I model. So theoretically, the districts who needed the most should have gotten the most. And by and large, that did happen. But here's the thing. Learning loss, we were in this unprecedented, everybody stays at home and learns online and loses learning pandemic. So what it turned out to be is that if you run the models, it's the districts that received the least amount of money, those that were more well off, they arguably still suffered the same, for example, like years of learning loss as other kids. So it's a real question as to whether 
these funds realized their stated goal, right, or the government's stated goal. But here's the final one, and, and this is really the kicker. The final question was, were the funds actually, were they working to meet their purported goal? And here's a little quote from the article around what we learned about ARRA from several studies at the time, and that was, at the end of the day, to understand whether or not these funds were actually impacting learning loss, that we needed greater transparency, greater accountability, and more data. Now, if you look at what we're struggling with now, I don't know if you've read some of these district plans on how ESSER funds are being sent, Gerard, but I have, and nine times out of 10, they tell you absolutely nothing. And this is, I'm reading this article also on the same day that US Ed has announced that they're going to be having a summit profiling how districts are spending their funds. I'm sure some of them are spending them well, but at the end of the day, we really don't know how those funds are being spent. They had certain parameters, but you could probably drive a truck through most of those parameters. So I think that my prediction, Gerard, is going to be that 10 years from now, if you and I are still talking about this stuff, we are going to find out that the studies conclude we need greater transparency, greater accountability, and better quality data to figure out whether or not this, how much did I say at the beginning? Oh, I'm sorry, $190 billion in ESSER funds actually did anything <laughs> to stem learning loss. So that's my story. I highly recommend this study and this blog to our listeners because it's an interesting one. And I don't think we should forget that these districts are going to be spending ESSER funds for at least the next few years, Gerard, and they've got a long way to go in doing it the right way. So much of what you said, I'm going to say ditto, ditto, ditto. It's a shame that we can actually look 10 years in the future and have a conclusion that's going to be 80% in the ballpark. 10% could be totally off, or the additional 10% could even be worse in terms of the prediction. But you know what? When we look back through different presidential administrations and we see different theme-based investment to make work, yeah, we come back to, yep, it didn't work well, it didn't do this. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that because it's just, this is not a hard thing to do. You can actually follow the money. When we look at charter school malfeasance, we know every dime, we know yeah. every corner that was cut. When a school that is a voucher school or a school receiving private school funds, when it's time to close, the newspaper will run an expose telling you how much the principal made, the car he or she drove using public funds, uh, the amount of money that was used as kickbacks to vendors, they'll walk the lane. And when we come yeah. to traditional public schools, where's the money going? We're not always sure, but we as taxpayers let this happen. We do. We absolutely do. We let our districts off the hooks and they educate the majority of our kids. So we should not be doing that, yep. Gerard. And also, like, can we maybe just start talking about accountability on the front end? I don't know. That's what we do when we design policy for the most part at the state level. Let's uh, maybe ask ourselves that question. Hopefully we don't find ourselves in another pandemic right away. The next time we need to make yep. a huge investment, if there's another coming recession, let's remember that $190 billion and not create regulations that you could drive a truck through. So, Ooh, which just reminded me in terms of accountability, we know that we have a school-to-prison pipeline. It seems that we're more interested in holding students accountable while they're incarcerated and making sure the institution, the Department of Correction or the Department of Juvenile Justice, to make sure they do all the things right accountable to keep the public's money great. And yet when they're in the free world, 
We don't seem to have that same level of transparency and oversight. Just my thoughts. That is a fascinating observation. I think we need to do a whole show about that at some point. All right, but Jordan, we've got to bring in our fabulous guest because in just a moment, listeners, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Robert Alter, and he is the Emeritus Professor of Hebrew and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley. So we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back, Learning Curve listeners. We are here with Dr. Robert Alter. He is the class of 1937 Emeritus Professor of Hebrew and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley. He started his career as a writer at Commentary Magazine, where he was for many years a contributing editor. Professor Alter has written 28 books, including The Art of Biblical Narrative, The Art of Biblical Poetry, The Five Books of Moses, a translation with commentary, The Book of Psalms, a translation with commentary, Ancient Israel, the Former Prophets, Joshua Judges Samuel and Kings, a translation with commentary, and most recently he completed the three-volume book, The Hebrew Bible, a translation with commentary, of which the New York Times wrote, Alter's achievement is monumental, marked by literary grace and intelligent commentary. In 2009, he received the Robert Kirsch Award from the Los Angeles Times for a lifetime contribution to American letters. He earned his bachelor's degree in English from Columbia University and his master's degree and doctorate from Harvard University in comparative literature, as well as being awarded honorary degrees by Yale University and Hebrew University. Professor Robert Alter, welcome to The Learning Curve. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. I'd like to start by asking you about your landmark book that I just mentioned, The Hebrew Bible, A Translation with Commentary. It's earned wise praise, and it's perhaps, some would say, the best translation now available in print. Could you share with our listeners why the Hebrew Bible is probably the most influential book, some would say, that humans have ever produced, and talk about, especially for teachers and students in the 21st century? I know it's probably hard to wrap that into one little nugget, but... What would you think they should draw from its knowledge and wisdom? Well, the obvious explanation why the Bible has been that influential is that both Jews and Christians conceived it over the ages to be divinely inspired. So it was the guidebook to living the good life and blueprint for theology. It generated many different theologies on the part of different Thinkers. But to me, what is interesting is that the Bible is such a, I'll, I'll focus on the Hebrew Bible, which I think is different in kind in many respects from the New Testament. It seems to me that the Bible transcends its strictly religious, theological, or doctrinal function, because it is a very rich in some ways, interestingly contradictory representation of the of people struggling with their destinies, with the, the tangle of family relationships, with politics and what that does to a human being, and so on and so forth. So that that's one reason why, not the only reason that many readers who are not believers have felt that these books speak to them, that they tell them something about the human condition, 
they provide a certain illuminating perspective on their own lives. I want to pick up on that because you said that even for non-believers, it can provide an illuminating perspective on one's own life. I mean, especially today, even, I don't know if this is a product of me getting older or if it's quite real, you know, children, my own children, I look at them and I think, wow, they are living in a time of feels like heightened conflict. I think heightened because they're so right now for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And having this understanding of it because they have such at their fingertips, the ability to They don't have to go far to get a Facebook feed or an Instagram notice or whatever it is, how kids get their news today. And so there's a real need to understand how to resolve conflict, how to be a resilient human being and survive in the face of these great challenges. Can you maybe point to a specific story or, or a specific way in which an understanding of the Bible as a record of these things can help anyone confront conflict or become more resilient in life? Okay, first of all, as your question implies, conflict is all over the place in the Hebrew Bible, because last conflict is all over the place in our history in general, and all the more so at this particular moment in time. So I would particularly focus on what seems to me one of the greatest narratives to be produced anywhere in the ancient world, and that's the story of David. Now, okay, you think of the medieval representations of David in Christian iconography. He has a halo around his head, and he's playing a harp. And in Jewish tradition, he's studying the Talmud, which, of course, had not been composed when he was alive. But in fact, he's much more complicated and interesting and murky than all those pious representations. David starts off as a charismatic young man. He's beautiful. Everybody falls in love with him. He gets into the court, but he's been clandestinely anointed to become the king after Saul. And that gets into the story in a a whole complicated network of political machinations. Saul eventually becomes fixated on David in a paranoid way. David has to flee and on and on. And then once David does become king, the story of conflict is not over. His forces end up in a civil war with the 10 northern tribes. And once that's resolved, he has plenty of problems with his military commander, Joab, who seems to be the power behind the throne and in many ways manipulates David. And then his own son, Absalom, rebels against him and usurps the throne. We have a figure in some ways, a kind of tragic figure, because the conflict between his being a private person, a man who loves his father, and the king are irreconcilable. And yet, there is a kind of persistence in greatness. And David, for all his flaws, the worst of which is murdering Uriah after David has had an adulterous relationship with Uriah's 
wife Bathsheba. Despite all that, there is something enduring and noble and heartening about him. So although I hesitate to call anything a lesson from the Bible, you can see how reading that story, you get a sense of how a human being with all his mistakes and all his terrible conflicts can persist in history and do something with his life. You spend a great deal of time talking about human conflict, and that's definitely something that's a part of what we read. I'd like to talk with you about the book of Exodus. Now, there's several major leaders of the American civil rights movement, most notably Dr. King, who was heavily influenced by and drew inspiration from the book of Exodus, be it his themes of liberation or Moses' leadership. What did you say to our teachers and students, really of all faiths and political viewpoints, what can they learn from the Exodus story to better understand human cohesiveness? To begin with, there has been, your listeners should, should be aware, a whole movement in Latin America called Liberation Theology, which is largely based, or at least takes its point of departure from the book of Michael Walter, the intellectual historian at Princeton's uh, Institute of Advanced Studies, years ago wrote a book called Exodus and Liberation, which follows the, this trajectory. So uh, I would say there's something peculiar about the Exodus story. That, that is, it's a story of national origins. But most people trace their origins to some glorious triumph in the past. Like, think of uh, Virgil's Aeneid and the way the founding of the Roman people is based uh, on or can be traced back to Aeneas fleeing from conquered Troy, but enacting a grand military triumph in the Italian peninsula. By contrast, the Exodus story locates the origins of the people in slavery, which is almost a shocking idea. But it's also an inspiriting idea, that is, a people who has been abject, who has had no freedom, who has been worked like dogs, and in fact is then doomed by a genocidal decree affecting all the Hebrew males coming from the Pharaoh, this people manages, with the leadership of Moses, of course, to extricate itself from the house of bondage and to become a great people. So it's um, a moving story, and as I said, different from most stories of national origin. Well, to take that story just a, another step, right now Jews all over the world are celebrating Passover, which marks the exodus right, right. of the Israelites from slavery to Egypt. Your translation of the Hebrew Bible, as we've said earlier, is considered definitive. Could you talk about what educators and young people should know about the biblical narrative around this holiday? I think what they should know is pretty much what I've just said. Look, the history of the Jews after the Bible is, well, first of all, the history of the Israelites in the Bible a series of defeats. It's a little sliver of country sandwiched in between great empires to the east and the south. The, the 
Assyrians conquer the northern Israelite kingdom and obliterate it. Eventually, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom. Then it becomes a kind of province of the Persian Empire. So there is defeat after defeat. And then in the post-biblical period, of course, as a diaspora people, the Jews were repeatedly subject to persecution, pogroms, wide-scale massacres. That wasn't all of Jewish history, but certainly an important part. And yet, every year, Jews sit around the Seder table and they celebrate freedom. They celebrate the fact that we have come out of the house of bondage and now we are a free people. So it is a kind of inspiring story, and certainly that's one of the reasons why it has grabbed all kinds of Jews year after year, every April when Passover comes around. Absolutely. Part of any celebration is often sacred songs or sacred poems. In your book, The Art of Biblical Poetry, you've written about the power of poetry. Could you talk about the influence of Psalms and what we can learn from it regarding the ability of words and language to inspire us? Okay, now, it, it is sometimes said, but I think it's not persuasive, that the Psalms are the origin of lyric poetry in the West. But what they are, and the way that I think they have spoken to readers both pious and secular, is there is a powerful poetic expression of anguish and desperation. There are many of the Psalms where the speaker in the poem seems on the point of death, and yet at the end, he's rescued by God, which is, again, a grim story with a happy ending. Uh, then there are the great variety in the Book of Psalms, there are exuberant celebrations of the, the glories of creation. And as close as any biblical poetry comes to nature poetry, even something like nature poetry. So well, all this can speak to a very wide spectrum of readers, and you don't necessarily have to be a believer to be moved by all this. Absolutely. Well, speaking of moving people with words, we'd like for you to provide us a passage of your choosing to read from one of your many books. What I'd like to read is the first chapter, it's not very long, it's 16 verses of the Song of Songs, which I think is one of the most remarkable collections of love poetry in all of Western literature. and. One of the things that makes it so beautiful is that there's a kind of lush sensuality, but uh, cast in a kind of refined, delicate poetry. And that, that combination is very unusual. So I tried in my translation, which you'll be hearing in a moment, to get something of that to keep the language compact the way the Hebrew is, to use simple, eloquent words and to get some of the rhythm of the Hebrew. So here's chapter one of the Song of Songs. The first speaker is the woman and 
she is answered by the young man, so there's a lot of dialogue. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your loving is better than wine. For fragrance, your oils are goodly. Poured oil is your name, and so the young women love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me to his chamber. Let us be glad and rejoice in you. Let us extol your loving beyond one. Rightly do they love you. And then a new poem. The young woman is speaking. I am dark but desirable, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kid, like Solomon's curtains. Do not look on me for being dark, for the sun has glared on me. My mother's sons were incensed with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, my own vineyard. I have not kept. Tell me whom I love so, where you pasture your flock at noon, lest I go straying after the flock through your companions. And he answers, if you do not know, O fairest of women, go out in the tracks of the sheep and graze your goats by the shepherd's shelters. And then he speaks again to my mare among Pharaoh's chariots. I liken you, my friend. Your cheeks are lovely with looped earrings, your neck with beads. Earrings of gold we will make for you with silver filigree. And then she speaks. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave off its scent. A sachet of myrrh is my lover to me all night between my breasts. A cluster of henna, my lover to me, in the vineyards of Engedi. And then he speaks, this is the end of the chapter. Oh, you are fair, my friend. Oh, you are fair. Your eyes are doves. And she says, oh, you are fair, my lover. You are sweet. Our bed is verdant, too. Our house beams are cedar, our rafters evergreens. Well, Dr. Robert Alter, thank you so much. That was quite beautiful. Thank you for spending this time with us today and for your wide and remarkable body of work. Thank you for hosting me. It was a pleasure. And my tweet of the week comes from Education Next, April 17th, 2022. What states require in their educational standards has long lasting effects on individual attitudes and occupational choices. And the next part says the costs of canceling Darwin. Definitely worth a read. Ooh, Education Next, always with a good headline. I love it. Gerard, I'm going to go, you know, for a run. <laughs> you do the same. I'm going to go look at the empty marathon. Rub it in. Enjoy, enjoy this beautiful day here. But we will be back again together next week. We will be here with Professor Wilfred Schmid. And he is the Dwight Parker Robinson Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Harvard. He played a major role in drafting the 2000 Massachusetts Mathematics Curriculum Frameworks and has served on the U.S. National Mathematics Advisory Panel. Maybe he can tell me what happened to my math education because it wasn't pretty. Anyway, until then, Gerard, have a wonderful week. It's always lovely to share this time with you. Ditto.